everybody. I'm Patricia Duff, and welcome to The Common Good. Uh, today, we have an incredibly important conversation about the future of reproductive rights in America, and we are very excited to have two excellent guests to help give us the facts. First, I'd like to acknowledge a few honorables and VIPs in the audience. Uh, former First Lady of New York, Sildes Wall Spitzer, we're so happy you're here. Uh, she's an honorary advisory board uh uh, advisor for us, as is another guest with us, Stan Schumann. Um, welcome to, uh, to our honorables like Nancy Rubin, who's um, beaming in from the West Coast, Amanda Burden, Sally Menard, uh, Sybil Shanewald, and so many other important figures who've been uh, big activists on this issue and others. Um, well, many of us feared that we might be here, and here we are relitigating the advances won in 1970. Back then, the Supreme Court struck down a Texas law which made abortion illegal. That landmark case of Roe v. Wade created a precedent which protected a woman's right to make her own medical decisions for over a generation. Now, 50 years later, the courts and the fight for choice have changed dramatically and a new Texas state law, Senate Bill 8, threatens to circumvent the precedent of Roe v. Wade and effectively eliminate abortion access in the state. Who will get to decide a woman's reproductive decisions? Please welcome our outstanding guests who will help understand where we are on this issue. We are thrilled to have the indomitable Wendy Davis, who became a national figure and a folk heroine as a member of the Texas State Senate in 2013, when she stood up for, for an iconic 13-hour filibuster to prevent the passage of an anti-abortion legislation. She's an activist and an advocate for women. Her nonprofit organization, Deeds Not Words, works to give women the tools they need to organize, advocate for change, and increase voter participation. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. To help lead this conversation, we have the incredible Kimberly Atkins Store. Kimberly is a senior opinion writer and columnist for the Boston Globe, an MSNBC contributor, and the co-host of the podcast, Sisters in Law. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us today. And now I thank you. I'm so grateful to pass the mic over to you. Thank you so much, Patricia. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to start, get right into uh, this conversation with you, Wendy, uh, and, and talk about uh, what is happening in Texas in SBA. But I want to start that conversation by going back a little bit, back about to 2011, and have you help us understand, walk us through what has happened in Texas from then up into the point that we are now. Thank you, Kimberly. I, I think it's really important that we do that so we can really better understand the framework of what people across the state of Texas are facing right now. First of all, thank you for joining me for this conversation. Um, and thank you to the Common Good for inviting me to be a part of helping to educate more people about what we face here and potentially in other states. Uh, 2011 was really the first pivotal year for us in women's reproductive rights and freedom in Texas. Two simultaneous things happened that year. The first was that our um, funding for women's reproductive health care, family planning care, not abortion care, but um, all of the other services that are provided by reproductive health care 
uh, clinics across our state was cut uh, from uh, $111 million down to $30 million. And as a consequence of that, as you can imagine, 80 of our family planning clinics closed. None of them were providing abortion. And in a state uh, where we have not expanded Medicaid and where we have the highest percent and raw number of uninsured women in the country, many women were left without any health care whatsoever because those clinics were providing the only care that they had. That same year uh, was the, the year that our sonogram bill was passed, which requires a sonogram be conducted 24 hours prior to an abortion, that the uh, patient has to listen to the sonogram, though if they choose to turn their head, they may. Um, and the very same doctor that provides the sonogram must be the doctor who performs the abortion the following day, which creates a, a logistical challenge, um, but one that, that we were meeting. As a consequence of losing the healthcare access that women needed, as you can imagine, the demand for abortion care services actually increased in our state. Um, but in the face of that, in 2013, the law that I had the privilege of standing on the Senate floor to filibuster was a law called a targeted regulation of abortion providers. The law specifically um, imposed onerous rules and regulations on the clinics themselves, the physical standards that the clinics had to meet. It also required that doctors who perform abortions in those clinics have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. And it is very rare that abortion doctors have admitting privileges at hospitals because most of them do not practice in, in that arena. And many, many hospitals, of course, are religious-based uh, organizations and they do not provide an opportunity for abortion care doctors to be on their staff. That law, though we killed it successfully that day, ultimately did pass in another special session that was called specifically to pass it. And almost three years later to the day, the US Supreme Court overturned it. But in the meantime, though a part of the law was enjoined, the piece of the law that went forward forced the closure of more than half of our 42 abortion clinics in the state and created a, a geographic desert of sorts for women being able to access that care. Uh, a number of abortion funds then grew up around that need, raising money for travel and overnight costs, as well as the cost of abortion procedures themselves. And we were operating under that difficult climate um, all the way up until the overturning of the law. But even with the overturning, only three or four of those clinics have actually reopened because logistically it is just so difficult to bring in the medical care professionals and, and get an operating facility going again. So in the face of what was already a dire need, um, as you know, just recently, the state passed the um, Senate Bill 8, which limited abortion care to essentially six weeks of pregnancy. So that's where we are today. Just can you just give us a sense when that law was passed, 
when the Supreme Court issued that late night order allowing it to take effect, given the history that you just laid out for us? A, did you expect for this to happen uh, just eight years after your filibuster? Um, and, and what were your thoughts about it? What I expected would happen was that we were going to ultimately see a case go to the Supreme Court that was going to test Roe and its continued protections. What I did not expect was that our state would pass a law that sought to circumvent state action by putting the, uh, the um, prosecuting power in the hands of an individual um, a bounty hunter provision, of course, which provides a minimum of a $10,000 bounty that can be recovered if successful. I expected, even though that law passed in the regular session of this legislature, that uh, it would not ever go into effect. I, I just had no, no understanding of, of how or why that would happen. And so on the eve of the law taking effect, September 1st, I was shocked that the Supreme Court failed to enjoin it while taking up the constitutionality question of the law itself. And now here we are, um, almost four weeks in, and I can just tell you that on the ground here in Texas, the devastating impact is being felt in, in a, a very, very profound and personal way for so many people trying to access abortion care here. Now, you, you said you were shocked. Uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, in her dissent from that decision, called it shocking as well. Just today, Justice Samuel Alito uh, gave a speech at the University of Notre Dame, and I want to read you a little bit of what he said. He said, Put aside the false and inflammatory claim that we nullified Roe v. Wade. We did no such thing, and we said that expressly in our order. Now, as we pointed out, and as most of the people here know, the court allowed that law, which is clearly violative of Roe v. Wade, to go into effect. They did so in an order that was not that didn't come after a briefing on the merits, didn't come after arguments, and came, uh, I, if memory recalls, just before midnight when most people were asleep. What's your response to Justice Alito? I mean, it, it's such a, a specious claim because here in Texas, Roe v. Wade is gone. Um, just to, to help better describe why and how that happened, as soon as the law was allowed to take effect, clinics across the state had to make a tough decision. Would they continue to function in providing abortions past six weeks? They had heartfelt communications with their medical teams about this. And ultimately, every single clinic made a decision not to go forward with post six week abortion care because of the fear that their doctors and other clinic workers would be at great financial risk. The law actually allows personal suits against the doctors, against clinic workers, against maybe a friend who drove you to the clinic or your Uber or Lyft driver. Anyone in the chain of quote unquote, aiding and abetting access to abortion in our state. 
And that can be a very wide berth, but it certainly includes people who work in the abortion clinics. Many, in fact, most of our clinics here actually closed completely. And the few that do remain open are providing care within the parameters of the law. And as you probably know, um, last week, there was a, an op-ed in the Washington Post written by an abortion care provider here in Texas, Dr. Alan Braid from San Antonio, um, essentially working to draw a lawsuit. And there was a reason for that because with the failure of both the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court acting to intervene, it appeared as though the only way to force this question to their attention was for a violation of the law to occur. The anti-abortion troops here in Texas chose basically to look the other way and they were pretty candid about why. Um, what they said was, you know, we basically have won. We've closed the clinics. This is a small one. Um, so we think we can just let this pass because we've closed the big ones like Whole Woman's Health and, and the Planned Parenthood clinics. Um, and so we don't have the protections of Roe v. Wade in our state. And the very reason we don't have them was the Supreme Court's failure to intervene and block the enforcement of this law while the question of its constitutionality was being explored. So I want to get at uh, get your thoughts about um, the the legal responses to this, both uh, those lawsuits and the action by the Department of Justice. But first, you you were talking about the stakes and what was actually happening there on the ground, uh, providers closing, uh, a, a clear uh, uh, loss of access to the people of Texas. I've recently been talking to. Uh, a lot of black women who lead organizations who are talking about reproduct reproductive justice, which is different than reproductive rights. It's sort of where reproductive rights uh, and, and racial justice meet because of the disproportionate impact of the Texas law and other restrictive abortion laws on uh, poorer women, women of color, but particularly black women uh, who make up more than a third of the abortions that are performed, but who are 13% of the population, often because they don't have the same economic uh, medical care uh, access, uh, other reasons of other people. Now, let's be clear, the abortion is not inaccessible to all the women of Texas. There are women in Texas who are perfectly able to still get them and a lot who are not. Talk a little bit about that aspect of it. The, the fact that reproductive rights is one thing for everyone, reproductive equality is not. That, that's exactly right. Um, and I wanna give a shout out to the AFIA Center in Dallas, which is a black led organization that has been on the ground here working for reproductive justice and the access to reproductive health care for several years now and doing an incredible job articulating what you just said, Kimberly. Um, there is no question a disparate, disproportionate impact on people of color in our state who are trying to access abortion care. We know that people of privilege will get on an airplane and go to another state or drive to another state 
we know that our abortion funds are doing everything they can to equitize that and to provide opportunities for women who can't afford to do those things to have the means. However, um, what we expected and what is of course the case is that women who have children who have jobs that they cannot leave. Let me give you an example. If you go to Oklahoma to get an abortion, you have a 72 hour waiting period. That means you have to go there, spend four days there to have your sonogram and then your procedure. And for most working people whose jobs would be threatened by missing work, that just isn't practical. I was talking to the, the head of Planned Parenthood Greater Texas, who actually lives in my neighborhood the other day, and he was telling me some stories about people who have come into the clinic, who've been offered that option, but who have been absolutely unable to take advantage of it because their lives simply do not allow for the luxury of, of accessing that care. And it's definitely been the case since 2013, when we began to see that geographic desert of care, even within our state boundaries, that it was having a disproportionate impact on women of color, particularly in our rural communities and in the border communities of Texas. Um, but now that impact is being felt even more greatly than it had been before. And I, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to understand that where a, a group of people based on their income levels and the color of their skin or their heritage are not able to access the same reproductive care as a person living in the privilege of white skin and with the financial means to access that care, we're creating a greater and greater imbalance for people to be able to control their own lives, their own futures, the economies and health and vibrancy of themselves and their families, and ultimately the economy and vibrancy of our economy as a whole. Because without women's participation in the workforce, and we're certainly seeing the consequences of what happened with the pandemic, when women were not able to get the childcare that they needed, it not only has had a great and dire impact on their own family's financial resources, it's also had a great and dire impact on the economy as a whole. And these kinds of laws, if they start in Texas and spread elsewhere, will ultimately impact all of us. Uh, even if we think this is somebody else's problem, it's really not. Wendy, I want to ask you, uh, I don't want to put you in the in the mind of the lawmakers who are pushing uh, this and other laws, but if we look at data, we know that laws banning abortion or greatly restricting abortions do not reduce abortions. They don't reduce the number that are um, that happen. They just make them more dangerous. We actually know that the rate of abortion at the time that these laws were begun being passed uh, at the pace that they are now had been going down for a decade. And that was due to reasons, uh, according to the Guttmacher Institute, the Kaiser Family Foundation, a number of studies said it was a complex number of reasons, but one of the biggest was access to affordable contraception uh, through the Affordable Care Act. It really closely coincided with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. So that makes me ask, okay, 
if we take at face value, the people who support these laws really want to reduce or end abortions. If they know that this isn't the way to do it, why are they passing this law? Why are they putting women in danger, um, women who may need these procedures? We've heard members of Congress talk about today, talk about how they had abortions and, and detailing um, their life stories about what led them there. Why take that away if it doesn't actually achieve the goal they claim to achieve? I think there are two camps uh, working on, on preventing access to abortion care, certainly in my experience in Texas. There are people who are serving in the Texas legislature who truly believe that it is an immoral act to terminate a pregnancy and who bring with them their religious perspectives and impose those in the political arena. I actually have a greater understanding and respect for someone who's coming from a place of honest disagreement with abortion than I do the other group I'm about to describe. The other group, which is the vast majority of people who serve in the Texas legislature who have been advancing these anti-reproductive rights and justice laws are people who are doing so for their own political well-being and ambitions. And we're seeing that all over the country. Of course, this is nothing new. It really kind of began with the, the marriage of the evangelical movement and the Republican Party back in the Reagan era. And it has followed ever since. And it has polluted, unfortunately, the lawmaking and the, um, the rhetoric of so many of the people who are elected in the Republican Party right now in a way that is tremendously dangerous um, and in a way that's leaving in its wake a huge human and very real impact behind um, for the sake of political posturing for an office they may want to run for in the future. And I certainly saw that um, in 2013, the very reason a special session was called to bring up that anti-abortion law that I filibustered was because Rick Perry was hoping to run for president and then Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst had his eye on a US Senate run. The same thing is the case right now with Greg Abbott uh, being run at from the right and trying to protect his uh, right flank while at the same time having his eye on a potential presidential run. So I wanna get back to uh, the, the discussion of the legal posture that this is taking. Um, give us your thoughts about where things stand now. You talked about the lawsuits uh, involving Dr. Braid that he essentially um, invited. Uh, we have a petition before the US Supreme Court again now after this law has gone into uh, effect. We also have action from uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland in this case, which is really uh, unusual, really the first of its kind. What do you think about these, these separate paths in response to this law? Well, every path is necessary. 
um, the, the folks who are working tirelessly to challenge and overturn this law, or at least stop it in its tracks while its constitutionality can be considered, um, have been working around the clock. The Center for Reproductive Rights, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, and so many others, many uh, volunteer pro bono lawyers are coming at this from every point of attack that they can think of. The question that went to the Supreme Court uh, is asking a slightly different question than the original suit that was filed, hoping that that 5-4 majority will consider this a better question for them to answer and to um, intervene in the um, establishment of this law. The DOJ suit, which as you said, Kimberly, is very uh, unique. <laughs> Um, but also very much appreciated here because the, the DOJ, of course, has taken the position that it is their role to support uh, the Constitution and that this law is an unconstitutional one that draws them in. Um, I think that we may have success at the district court level with a temporary restraining order, a hearing of which will be tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., but I am skeptical about what the Fifth Circuit and the Supreme Court will do because of the uniqueness of that challenge. Um, and then finally, in state court, Dr. Braid has been sued just to demonstrate the ludicrousness of this law. Um, one by a disbarred lawyer in Arkansas and one by a disbarred lawyer in Illinois. Um, both of whom have professed to actually supporting abortion rights, but one of whom has said, you know, let's face it, if I get awarded the money, I'm going to take the money. Um, so those are proceeding in state court right now, and we, we haven't had a hearing set on any procedural matters in that case yet, so time will tell what the success of that might look like. And while that's all playing out, I want to talk a little more about that provision uh, that was put in to specifically to evade judicial review that puts the enforcement of this law in the hands of members of the public completely unrelated to whatever uh, these people uh, who are seeking reproductive care are, are doing. They don't have to have any connection with them. One concern that I have outside of reproductive justice is this idea that that will be a new tool, that we will see laws being passed that deputize um, individuals to sue if they see someone dropping a ballot in a box, uh, a mail-in ballot in a box that they think doesn't belong to them, or to sue someone if they ask for, uh, a, try to do a background check before a gun purchase or whatever the issue is, make that the mechanism to keep, keep out state actors and completely evade judicial review. Is that something that you think could happen? I absolutely do. Um, and, and it's a pivotal question for the Supreme Court to answer. And again, you know, raising the question of how shocking it was that they refuse to enjoin the law while they consider that question. The ramifications can be, you know, on, on both sides of the aisle. Take, for example, a state that has stronger gun safety laws and the fact that they may deputize citizens to report their neighbors 
if they're possessing a firearm in violation of one of those laws. It, it's limitless what this could do. And I, I have to say, it, the fact that it's happening against the backdrop of a legislative session where Texas actually passed a law removing the requirement that someone carry a permit or get a permit to carry a weapon in our state. We now have permitless carry here. The fact that we are backing up on the requirements in order to exercise an arguably constitutional right under the Second Amendment um, compared to the constitutional right as established under Roe is just such a, a stark explanation and example of how off kilter we've gotten in our state. And the reason for that is because we have had partisan gerrymandering that is so extreme that we are now actually being controlled by a very small minority of voters in Texas. And, and if I can explain that. In the last gubernatorial election, Greg Abbott uh, was voted forward in his primary by fewer than 9% of the registered voters in our state. 9% decided that he would be the Republican nominee. And because we've had such a, a dearth of opportunity to elect Democrats at the district level, our voter turnout um, has really been abysmal. And that, of course, isn't by accident. It's also by design with many of the anti-voter laws that we've had here. So Greg Abbott won the general election. He feels like he was elected by that small minority of voters, which indeed he was. And he feels that they are the only people that he needs to answer to. There was a poll yesterday of Texans um, that demonstrated more than 75% of Texans disagree with this law's uh, lack of exception for rape and incest. And more than 70% of Texans disagree with the idea that there should be any limitations on the existing landscape of abortion as provided under Roe v. Wade. And yet, here we are. Yeah, and I want to ask a question I've been thinking about a lot. I, I wrote about it about a, a year ago in a column during the um, presidential campaign season. When I, I was traveling by car, because it was in the middle of the pandemic, to, to visit my parents. And along the way, when you would see Trump signs, right, there were, there were big crosses around them, big American flags, USA around them, but a lot, a lot of crosses, a lot of, you know, religious support religious-based support. When you would see the Biden signs, there really wasn't a lot of that. I've spoken to people during the campaign who said, or particularly in 2016, when they said they didn't know who to vote for, and because of their faith, they were afraid to vote for Hillary Clinton. There has been this narrative that has been advanced by Republicans that they are the party of the faithful. They are the party of God. And Democrats have more uh, shape themselves as the party of choice and of freedom, you know, of, of reproductive freedoms, these other terms. But many people who are religious, they many of them vote Democratic, 
many of them support the very things that you say at, at the very least exceptions for the life uh, and health of the mother. If there is a restrictive bony law, many of them support reproductive rights and freedoms. Um, do you think that this is a messaging problem that Democrats have that laws like this get almost automatic support from some people who are doing so because they honestly think it's the right thing to do and not saying, look, we don't want abortions to happen either. That's why we're giving access to affordable contraception. That's why we want to ensure that we're protecting women's lives. Women's lives can be put in danger without having this. This is pro-life. Do, do you think that this is an, at least in part a messaging problem? I think in part, that's absolutely right. You know, for, for me, I've long been frustrated by the pro-life mantra, and I've been pushing back against that since the moment I was elected to serve in the Texas Senate. Because while there, and certainly um, in the ensuing years, I've observed a state that has really abandoned its responsibility to caring for the people who live within our boundaries. We, as I said earlier, have the highest percent and number of uninsured people in the country, including children. Uh, we have the one of the lowest support for our public schools. Our foster care system has been under federal court oversight for years now because so many children have been abused and or died within that system. We have women who desperately need the financial support to make themselves and their families a success. And in fact, more than 50% of people who give a reason for their abortion express financial constraints as the primary reason that they seek that care. And yet we are a state and a nation, unfortunately, that has not yet done what every other industrialized nation has done by taking care of providing uh, affordable quality childcare for the children who exist and live and breathe in our state. Um, and for our failure, of course, for paid family leave, for pay equity in our state, uh, which I actually was successful in passing in 2013 uh, before the special session was called um, and Governor Perry vetoed that law. Um, so in that very same matter of days, he literally vetoed a law that would help women to be able to have um, you know, a, a greater decision-making capacity with regard to their family and then claimed, of course, that he was pro-life in advancing the anti-abortion law that passed here. So I do think spinning that on its head and today the chairwoman of the House subcommittee that heard testimony, as you mentioned, Kimberly, from three of our Congresswomen who talked about their personal abortion stories, as well as some of our clinic providers here and others. She started the hearing with remarks about the hypocrisy of that label, that mantra that says it is pro-life. And Pramila Jayapal did a really good job of that as well. 
Yeah, so uh, it's almost time to, to get questions from our participants, but first I want to talk a little bit about solutions. You already talked about some uh, that have been advanced by various pieces of legislation, various proposals, and, and it's not just uh, passing row acts at the state and federal level that would codify row, but it's things that involve uh, maternal health care and, and, and uh, prenatal care and, and health care access uh, in general, a lot of people, women, um, particularly women of color, don't feel like they're concerned about anything are taken seriously about their doctor. So talk about some solutions um, and talk about what Deeds Not Words is doing. Sure, so um, I'm so glad you raised that question, Kimberly, because it is a, a real catastrophic and, and traumatic problem here. The US, as you probably know, has the highest of all industrialized countries in the world rate of maternal mortality and morbidity. Texas has the highest rate of any state in the country. And black women are dying at three times the rate, even though they occupy a much lower percentage of childbirth in our state. Um, so th this is a demonstration of how broken things are and how people who are living here, who contribute to our economy and contribute to our diversity and the, the, the talent of who we are, these are very real people who are being impacted by decisions, um, again, to, that claim to be pro-life, but aren't supporting the very lives of the people that live within its boundaries. As far as your question about deeds, not words, um, a couple of things I wanna mention. First of all, we created a legal defense fund, an indemnity fund um, that is very much needed. And we've been in conversations with the Center for Reproductive Rights and many others about the fact that someone's gotta cover the backs of these healthcare workers if they are sued in terms of any personal liabilities, financial liabilities that they may incur. That's the fines, which who knows what the limit may be on them. The floor is $10,000. Um, and if they lose, they have to pay the opposing counsel attorney's fees as well, which can run into the tens of thousands of dollars. And if we really wanna successfully push back against this law, and if we are going to continue to live in an arena where the Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit fail to intervene, the only way out of the morass is for more healthcare providers to feel like they have the license to violate the law, as Dr. Braid did, to draw those suits and to know they're not going to risk personal financial harm if they do. So deeds, not words. Uh, has a legal defense fund. If anyone's interested, it's on our website. The other thing that we are doing, um, we're on 15 high school and college campuses around the state. Most of those are majority minority campuses. And we're working very hard to elevate the voices and the power of young women across our state who tend to be on the receiving end of so many of the policies that are enacted here but whose voices are absent from the halls of power. And I'm very proud to say that in the five years since our inception, 
these amazing young women have passed more than 15 bills into law. They have sat in committee hearings and testified with their personal truths and narratives. And I'm really proud of the work that we continue to do to make sure that we give young women the tools. They already have the power, um, but we give them the tools to be able to use their power in the most effective way possible. And of course, to make sure that they understand that behind every challenge that they may see from a policy perspective is a policy maker. And if that policymaker is not reflecting their lived experiences, voting is the only way to change that. All right, I think this is a good place to uh, transition and take some, some questions from our audience. All right, first of all, that was a perfect conversation about this very difficult topic. So thank you for your comments, Wendy, and thank you, Kimberly, for perfect <laughs> moderating there. Um, first, I want to thank Marsha Sudolsky, who invited some of the folks from the Tri-State Maxed Out Women, and um, someone who's um, a figure in that group, Betty Cotton, has our first question. Betty? Thank you. I, I And thank you for this incredibly thorough examination of this. I was at a an event last night for Choice Matters, which is the oldest um, reproductive rights organization in the country. Um, so my mind is spinning. Um, I wanted, I have two, two questions. Um, one, um, could you comment on the ripple effect of this law um, in many other states now? We see that they're watching and, and trying to uh, copy or <clears throat> figure out how they can uh, participate the way Texas has done. And the second one, which is not a, a very different one, but you mentioned voting rights before in, in your conversation. Last night, it was a big topic um, that it really is connected directly to reproductive rights and reproductive health for women um, because it prevents this, the, the folks you're all talking about and mentioning all the, the women who are not counted and not in the not being able to have a voice, um, and I wonder if there's a could be a, a, a national strategy to combine these so women really connect the dots because I don't think a lot of folks do. I think that's a new um, strategy, maybe not for you all or for people who have been watching this, but for many folks out there. Thank you. Great to see you, Wendy. <laughs> great to see you too, and thanks for your great questions. Um, on the Ripple, you're right. I mean, we're already seeing copycat laws that are poised um, to pass in other states. And I think, of course, there's a watchful eye on what will happen with court intervention here in Texas. Um, there is also, of course, the case, the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban case that will be heard in December by the US Supreme Court and will probably have a decision, um, you know, at least by June. And a lot of people are, are watching to see what the outcome of that will be too. But it is the political season. And because of that, lawmakers who are trying to attract the very voter that a Greg Abbott tries to attract 
are going to be tripping all over themselves trying to be the most bold in coming forward with the most anti-abortion law they possibly can. And we can expect to see more and more of this in states that are controlled by the Republican Party. Um, the other question that you asked about voting rights is, is absolutely right. These things all go together. Where we don't have voting rights, so many of our civil rights that follow from being able to vote also fall. And um, I hope we can make more of a case for that, not just in the instance of reproductive justice and healthcare, but also, of course, in so many of these other issues that we're talking about, criminal justice reform being a huge, hugely impact issue um, that, that will take a real blow as a consequence of some of the anti-voting rights laws that have been passing in states like Texas and Georgia. And honestly, uh, though I tend to be an optimistic person and um, always hold out hope for change, I am very worried that if we can't accomplish something at the national level to correct the unconstitutional voting rights violations that are happening in states across this country, all of those other issues that we care about, whether we're talking about affordable child care or any of the other things we've discussed today, they all will fall as a consequence of not having the opportunity to vote. Okay, so let's go to Carla Singer. Um, I'm just curious to know if the Bridget Alliance uh, is susceptible to the Texas law, and if so, how can they protect themselves and the women? I'm sorry, Carla, who were you asking about? It's, the Bridget Alliance was started in 2018. It's a fund to um, get women out of Texas to go to other states. It's not based in Texas. It's, it's a general um, NGO doing gotcha. a good job. So are they susceptible to the Texas law, even though they're not in, based in Texas? Here's how they, they would be susceptible. Um, and that is such a good question, act, actually, where an out-of-state actor is yeah. um, violating the law, would this cover them? I don't want to give you uh, an off-the-cuff answer because I'm really not sure. Um, but I can tell you what is happening with other abortion funds that do what you're describing, who are located within the state. Um, they feel comfortable in their ability to allow and to aid women to access abortion care outside of our state. Um, however, if we do get into a situation where more providers decide to do what Dr. Braid has done, um, it will be the case that those abortion funds will probably be unable because of legal fears to provide the same kind of care to access abortion within the state for women who need those resources. Um, and something that we're looking at to be able to use the legal defense fund that we created to support. Um, but you ask a really good question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go look into that. Thank you for it. Thanks. A yeah, very That's interesting true. question. 
Um, Anne-Marie Cunningham, let's go to you. Thank you, Patricia. And um, thank you for this wonderful conversation. Um, I am, I'm a New Yorker who is reporter in residence at the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. I never anticipated that Mississippi would become ground zero for the future of Roe versus Wade. And I sadly fear listening to you, Senator Davis, today that uh, you're describing the future of Mississippi as well. Um, there is one abortion clinic left in Mississippi here in, in Jackson. I was wondering if you could um, go into a bit more detail. You mentioned that um, it was very difficult for, once a clinic has closed, it was very, very difficult to reopen it. Why is that so? So you, one, one of the reasons, and, and you may have experienced this in, in Mississippi, um, many of the abortion care doctors travel yes. state to state to provide care. Yes. Um, there's actually a, door, a dearth of abortion care providers. Mm. And once clinics closed and they get absorbed into doing work in other places, getting the capacity for abortion doctors to provide that care is challenging. The other challenge of it is staffing and the regulations that oversee abortion facilities in our state, which are already more rigorous um, than other uh, healthcare facilities are subjected to. The red tape that is purposely put in place here has made it very difficult to open. And most of the clinics who are considering or attempting to reopen are doing so understanding that they might once again face the kind of targeted regulations of abortion providers that passed in 2013. And so for example, Planned Parenthood has opened two clinics since 2013, one in Lubbock, uh, which was immediately forced to close because of a city ban that passed one in Fort Worth. And in both of those, they built their facilities to the standards as though that 2013 law had been allowed to go forward, knowing that they may be at risk of that happening in the future. So it's a number of factors, um, both pragmatic and financial. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Morley Clouster, you have a question? Marley, you're turning on your... Uh... I got it. Um, my question is, has kind of been broached by, I think it was Carla, because I've been thinking about this for a month. How in the short term to help these women get abortions that can't? And I wondered if out-of-state um, actors, whether it was NARAL or Planned Parenthood, couldn't set up a way to fly these women. You, you talked about, you know, three or four days in Oklahoma, but there's 21 states that have no way <coughs> at all. And why couldn't these organizations outside of Texas fly these women? It would take, you know, a weekend. You, you leave on a Friday night, you get back on Sunday and finance that. 
And if they ever got caught because they were out of state, wouldn't that mean that they would land in a federal court for this? And wouldn't that help the whole thing? Possibly. The, the case that was filed in state court here actually can be removed. One of those two plaintiff's cases can be removed to federal court because it meets the requirements. Um, it asks for more than $75,000 in relief, and it's an out-of-state plaintiff. And those two things together allow uh, such a case to be removed to federal court. Um, Right now, and maybe I can better answer Carla's question at the same time, right now, providing abortion care outside the state um, has been, everyone believes, um, allowed under the law and doesn't open anyone to liability under the law as long as that care is taking place out of the state. Um, so that could happen. I do want to say a, a, a great deal of appreciation for the people from all over the country who have been giving to our abortion funds here in Texas. And we created a collective where a donation can be made in a single act blue page and it is split among the abortion funds here. And they have received an absolute outpouring of financial support that is allowing them to try to provide as much transportation as they possibly can. That will help, it will, and it has helped tremendously. But as I said earlier, for many people, that care is still out of their reach because they can't travel, they can't miss work, and they have children at home to care for. That's worth uh, repeating, Wendy. What is the page on ActBlue that uh, one can give to that uh, gives funds for various organizations like that? You know what I'm going to do as soon as we finish? I'm going to pop it up into my Twitter feed. So if you go to Wendy Davis, Texas, actually my Twitter feed is just Wendy Davis. If you go to Wendy Davis, you're, you're going to see that when we finish this call. I'll put a link to that ActBlue page in there. Okay, great. I, I have a, a little question, uh, which something disturbs me since there's so many guns uh, and gun carry laws in Texas. Are you at all concerned, of course, and violent crime is up, are you at all concerned about the threat of violence for people who are trying to obtain abortions at this point? No question. Um, I've been hearing stories from people on the ground here that the minute this law went into effect, people have been showing up in protests at abortion facilities armed. Um, and we've always, of course, had protests. We've always had people who are there uh, harassing um, patients who are accessing care but it's risen to a new level in terms of people showing up who are armed. Yeah, I'm afraid that we might have um, a situation at some point. Bob Wyman, did you have a question? Yeah, and um, basically I, I'm concerned about the method that's being used in Texas as much as the, well, obviously the consequence stopping abortion is much worse, but nonetheless, the method, is very important. 
because I think um, uh, it, it, if it becomes popularized, and certainly now everybody knows about it, um, it, it can really damage our legal system. We already see there was a recent New York Times article that said that apparently in both Tennessee and Florida, there are now laws that are empowering and rewarding people for suing um, if their students and are forced you know, to, to endure the presence of transgender people. Um, there are other laws that are saying that you can use this Texas method, or being proposed that you use this Texas method if critical race theory is ever mentioned in a school. I saw yet another reference saying that if you're ever refused the opportunity to, or asked to take a, to, to, to remove your gun before entering some facility, that you're, you're to be uh, allowed to sue. In all of these cases, they're using this same method. It seems to me that the method itself um, is something that we should be attacking and, and having removed from um, the, the potential set of tools that people can use. What can, be use. what can be done to eliminate the use of this method in all realms, not just in this yeah. one realm of, of abortion rights? It's such a good question and excellent point. Um, and Kimberly, of course, asked a question about this earlier, you know, what, where's the, the limit to this, right? Um, and it, it, as you said, it will completely turn our legal system on its head. Um, so I know that the lawyers who are going to argue this case, hopefully they'll be given an opportunity before the Supreme Court will absolutely raise that question as the most essential key question to be answered here. And I hope that the Supreme Court will answer it in a way that makes it clear that you cannot avoid state action that is unconstitutional and that would otherwise be blocked by the courts by instead putting unconstitutionally uh, enacted laws in the hands of private citizens because there literally will be no limit to it. And one would hope that even this Supreme Court with these justices would see their way to that. It's a great question. I mean, hopefully we can eliminate that tactic. It was pretty brilliant actually. Um, Kay Koplovitz, do you have a question? I, I just wondered in listening to all of this in terms of uh, all the organizations, uh, Wendy, yours and many others that have fought for so many years before so many of us on this call have been in this fight for, <laughs> seems like our entire lives. Uh, which is many decades for some of us. Uh, you know, is there a totally different way of thinking about providing the services outside um, the law that won't be that can't be challenged? Have you ever taken a path, a different pathway? I know the challenges have all been in the courts. They're in the courts. Um, has there ever been discussion of some other completely way of dealing with the issue? Um, besides the court laws. I, I, I cannot think of any, but I was wondering if any had ever been discussed or undertaken by your group. Well, there are many brighter minds than mine, okay, who have put their heads to that question. Um, 
And, and really the, the only answer right now is a, an advancement in medical um, practices, which of course allows medication abortion um, much easier to administer, can be administered without even seeing a, a, a patient. Um, that's not allowed in Texas, of course. They have to follow the same steps as though a person were coming in for a surgical abortion procedure. But that advancement has certainly made access to abortion care in the face of laws like this more accessible, uh, where women can try to receive that care outside the state's boundaries. Um, and I would imagine that if that is ever called to the attention of the authorities under this particular law, there, there would be a real problem. Um, and then the other thing really is to focus on two pieces. One is the family planning care that is so desperately needed. And you know, to remind everyone, Texas cut more than $70 million out of its family planning care in the same session that it began its attack on abortion rights in our state. When I look at states like Colorado, um, I'm, I'm inspired to believe that we can do things that will really advance that. Colorado, of course, has made long-term contraceptive care available to people who cannot afford it. And their teen pregnancy rate as a consequence of offering yeah. that care has gone down dramatically. So we know that unintended pregnancies can be dramatically reduced if we empower people to have the tools to reduce those. Um, and then also, again, getting at this issue of financial constraints and, and concerns being a majority of the, the reason that women give for accessing abortion we should be providing support to making sure that people who carry pregnancies to term will have the kind of support for their family and their child's um, opportunity for a bright future that they need. Um, and if we really wanted to solve for the abortion problem, back to Kimberly's uh, very first question, if we really wanted to solve for that, um, those are the kinds of things that would be happening. And there's something else at play here besides um, you know, really trying to stop abortion and much more about political and really misogynistic principles that are at play. Well, thank you so much. That's uh, an important conversation that we've had here Wendy, you, you continue to be a hero for us. Kimberly, you're a hero too for all, all the work that you do. And um, thank you, everybody. We couldn't get to all of your questions. I apologize. But do you have any last words, Wendy and Kimberly? Just want to thank everyone for giving an opportunity to hear more about what's happening. Um, please do spread the word to others that you know may be concerned. As I said, I will put a link in my Twitter feed when we finish to the Joint Abor Abortion Fund site, Act Blue site. And Kimberly, thank you for your great questions and for being a part of this today. Wendy, thank you uh, for this really uh, enlightening conversation. I learned a lot today. I hope everyone else did too. And it was a pleasure to be a part of it. Thank you.
Thank, Thank you so much, everybody. Please um, come back. We've got uh, Richard Dreyfus tomorrow uh, talking about activism in Hollywood. Uh, Chrissy Houlihan, representative from Pennsylvania, a rising leader on November 4th. Alvin Bragg, we're going to have some of uh, uh, our uh, local folks who may become national figures. Alvin Bragg, who's a um, New York district attorney candidate, and Leticia James, and much more coming up. So please join us. And thank you so much again, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you, Wendy. Thank, thank you, Kimberly. I hope you'll come back. Thanks, Dan. Thank you.